So as Mitch said this morning already, we're starting a new series this week, a new series called Prepare for Battle. And in this series, we're going to be thinking and we're going to be looking at all sorts of battles in the, in the Bible, battles that people fight, uh, literal battles, battles in war or, or battles in people's lives, struggles that they face that they have to, to overcome and fight through. And before, I think all of us know, before we dive into the battles themselves, we have to look at a battle speech, right? Because before every great battle, there's a great speech, or at least that's what the books and the movies would have us believe, right? right? There's Aragorn in Lord of the Rings before the Black Gates. There's William Wallace in Braveheart, right? Freedom, right? You throw, I try to get a sword to actually throw, but Bill said no to that one, so whatever, <laughs> There's Maximus. Oh, shoot. Where's Matt Griesby? Do I have Decimus? De- okay. Meridius in Gladiator, right? There's all these great speeches. My wife, she said, I needed to add one more. The unforgettable classic, she said, Elwood's courthouse speech in Legally Blonde. And I watched it and I thought, yeah, that's a great battle speech. Okay, fair enough. But what is, in my opinion... What may be one of the greatest battle speeches of all time. It doesn't come from literature. It doesn't come from movies. But it actually comes from, from the Second World War. And as many of you know, uh, some history of the Second World War, the, the, Ger- the Nazi Germans, they quickly overran the French at the outbreak of the war. And so they'd taken over most of Europe at the time. And we've got some cool maps here that we'll see in a second that I made. So everyone be in awe of my cartography. Yeah, okay. Uh, so they, they take over to France relatively quickly. And after that, they, Hitler sends his rising star of a general named Erwin Rommel down to North Africa with the goal of kind of taking control of British North Africa. And the idea was simple. What the Germans knew was that if they could gain control of, of the oil and the resources of the Middle East, control the Suez Canal, they would be able to win the war. They would be able to choke the British out and eventually take over the islands. And what the British knew was that if they held this area, if they held Egypt, they held the Middle East, they would be able to, to withstand the onslaught. They could rely on their navy, on their air force, and they would be able to stay where they were at. And so the, the battle for Britain was really fought in North Africa. And what we see is that when Rommel arrived in North Africa, he beat the British over and over and over again to the point that he actually advanced so far east he got within 90 miles of the Suez Canal and the idea was pretty clear that if they advanced east all the way to Suez that the war would be that they'd lose Egypt they'd lose the Middle East there was no hope that they could hold these positions and so in a last ditch effort the, the British sent a new general named Bernard Montgomery to lead the British forces in North Africa. And when Montgomery arrived in North Africa, what he discovered was that the, the army was in total disarray. That when he got there, they were already digging trenches hundreds of miles behind where they were because they had just planned on kind of retreating and giving up all these positions even though that they knew at some level that the war would be decided right here. And so Montgomery, he called together his officers after having arrived there. He brought them together and, and some of the soldiers, and he gave what is one of those iconic speeches 
before the eve of battle. And so he said this looking at the condition of, his, of the army. He said, It is an atmosphere of doubt, of looking back to select the next place to which to withdraw, of loss of confidence in our ability to defeat Rommel, of desperate defense measures by reserves in preparing positions in Cairo and the Delta. All that must cease. If we lose this position, we lose Egypt. Here we will stand and fight. There will be no further withdrawal. I have ordered that all plans and instructions dealing with further withdrawal are to be burnt and at once. We will stand and fight here. If we can't stay here alive, then let us stay here dead. Montgomery drew a line in the sand right then and there that day. He said, this is the, how far we will go and no further. If we can't stay here alive, then let us stay here dead. When someone says that, you know they're serious, right? That's not like a casual thing to say. And from that day forward, the British army stopped fighting like it had somewhere to run to and started fighting like this was the last opportunity it had to win the war. And what we see is that immediately afterwards, the British, they stopped the German offensive. They began their own offensive and they started pushing back the German war machine, pushing them back further and further through North Africa. Until by the spring of 1943, less than a year after Montgomery arrived in North Africa, the Germans had been expelled from the continent. And some of you who like history are saying, well, Patton had something to do with that. And that's true, but it didn't, make, it didn't fit my sermon, so we're just going to ignore that fact this morning. <laughs> but with one speech, in one moment, Montgomery changed the course of a war. But what would Montgomery have said if he didn't know he was at war? How would he have prepared his army for battle, this fight for their very lives, for their very existence, if he hadn't known that they were at war? And what I want us to see this morning is that to prepare for battle, you have to know you're at war. To prepare for battle, you have to know you're at war. And the truth is that you are at war. You're at war, and to see this, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And if you've been around the church for a while, or you grew up in the church, you probably know Ephesians 6, right? It's the armor of God passage. There's probably, you were probably a kid in Sunday school, and your Sunday school teacher, right, they busted out the plastic set of armor, and they like put it on one kid and you dress them up and you're like, that's the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the spirit. And you name all the pieces of the armor of God and you kind of get dressed up and then you march around like you know what that means. And then that's it. And I think for so many of us, we grow up in this sort of environment that we, when we hear this passage, we imagine that cheesy set of plastic armor. We picture a little kid dressed up in the armor you could buy at Party City or wherever but I want to put this passage before we read it in its first century context. Because I don't think for the people of Ephesus, who Paul wrote this letter to, they weren't picturing a cheesy set of plastic armor when Paul wrote them this note. In fact, one commentator, he says that, that this passage that we're looking at, it was this grand closing moment of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He takes 
all the themes that he's built up throughout the letter and he brings them back in into one 10-verse section to just close it out. And he does it all, this commentator says, in the structure of the speeches that a general at that time would give. That Paul is giving to the people of Ephesus his battle speech. This is an invitation to a real genuine battle that he, that he is saying these people that we are engaged in each and every day. So this is what Paul says. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're at war. Not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly forces of, e- or the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have an unseen enemy that is actively scheming against us in this war, an enemy that it is all too easy for us to downplay or disregard for the simple fact that we don't see him. An enemy whose name is Satan, who Peter describes as prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And in this war against our enemy, there is no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's no navigating your way through no man's land, not picking either side. These battles take place. The battle takes place all around us. It takes place in our own lives all the time. In the spots in our lives where we might give Satan a foothold or a stronghold, a place we can give him where we'll give him an opportunity to dig in, to pull us away from God and the life that God has for us. It's fought in our relationships with our spouse, with our kids, with our family. It's fought when we decide how we're going to spend our time, what we're going to spend our money on, what we're going to choose to watch and consume. It's fought how we, in the way we treat our coworkers, the people we go to school with. It's fought in these everyday moments in our lives. And I think it's easy for us, right? You've got a series called Prepare for Battle, and, and I'm talking about the armor of God and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And like when Bill gave me that passage, my mind went to the exorcist, okay? That's what I imagined the spiritual war would look like. But I think in reality, maybe while that might be sometimes true, what we really see is that this spiritual war that we're fighting looks more like just our everyday lives. It looks like fighting in our everyday lives for the things that God has for us. And sometimes it's easy for us then to say, well, it's not as important. It doesn't matter as much because it's not this big dramatic confrontation. But I don't want us to downplay how important this battle is and how difficult this battle is as well. Because Satan, as we know, he doesn't cause every evil in the world. We are plenty good at doing that ourselves. But he is more than willing to use every evil against us. 
Satan doesn't cause every fight between you and your spouse, but he is more than willing to use every fight against you. Satan doesn't cause every moment of temptation, but he is more than willing to use every moment of temptation against you. Satan doesn't cause every struggle with depression and anxiety and mental illness, but he is certainly more than willing to use those moments against you, those struggles against you. And our, 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 our spiritual battle is fought out in those moments against an enemy that we often downplay or ignore. And the Ephesians who Paul wrote this letter to in the first century, they would have had no doubts about who their enemy was or how powerful he was. What we see in the book of Acts is that four years before Paul writes this letter, there's an incident that takes place in the city of Ephesus uh, that gets recorded in Acts where these seven sons of a man named Sceva, who is a, a priest in the city, they go around the city and they try, they're trying to cast spirits out of people. They're trying to cast demons out of people. And these seven sons, they, they don't, they're not followers of Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They've just seen the, the Christians and the apostles doing this, and so they think it's something they can do too. And so they go up to this man possessed by a demon and they say, in the name of Jesus, you know, leave. And the demon responds to them. And the demon says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The demon literally mocks them in this moment. And then what we see in Acts is that the demon then attacks them physically. Right? So these seven sons of Sceva end up fighting this one man possessed by a demon, and they lose, and they lose so badly that Ash describes them as running away naked. And I don't know the logistics of how they got from point A, where they were clothed in the fight, to point B, where they were naked in the fight. But something happened. And this man possessed by a demon defeats them seven to one. And it says that the people of Ephesus, both the Jews and the Greeks, heard this took place and they were terrified. It went all throughout the city. People were talking about this. And then four years later, Paul is writing to this church, this community, saying your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spirits, against the demons, against the evil forces in the spiritual realm. And you can imagine that for the people in the church of Ephesus, they had a pretty good idea of what it looked like to do battle with the spiritual forces of evil in the world. This wasn't some small task for them. And I don't tell the story, and I don't think the story exists in the book of Acts to scare us or to make us afraid in a way. But I think it's important for us in any battle, it's important to know your enemy to have a healthy respect for their power, for their ability. Right? If you underestimate your enemy in battle, you underestimate their strength, you underestimate their number, then, then you'll, under, you'll underestimate what you need to defeat them. Your own strength, your own numbers, your own commitment, and you'll lose. And the same thing is true in our spiritual wars, in our spiritual battle as well. If we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we will be tempted to go into battle in our own strength, in our own power, in our own authority, in our own ability, in our own will. And we will lose. 
just like the seven sons of Sceva, we will be defeated. And this is why Paul doesn't open this passage by saying, fight harder, right? Look at what he says. In verse 13, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's the whole point of this passage, is to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And he goes on with this throughout the rest of the passage. So let's read verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What I want us to see is that you don't stand firm in your own strength. You stand firm in God's power. Let me say that again. You don't stand firm in your own strength. You stand firm in God's power. That's the whole point of this passage. And we could get bogged down for a long time looking at each of the different pieces of the armor of God, saying this is what the breastplate of righteousness is about. This is what the belt of truth is about. We would be here a long time. And so for today's purposes, I want us to just see this, that all of these things, the full armor comes from God. It is God's armor that he gives to us in his spirit. They're symbols of God's power and God's authority. They represent God's strength and God's rule. And it is only through God's power that we can stand firm. Right in verse 13, right? It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Without the armor of God, without God's power, you will not be able to stand your ground. None of us will be able to stand our ground. Yes, the powers of the enemy are strong. They're stronger than you or I. But they're not stronger than God's. God is more powerful. And in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 19, Paul talks about God's power at the start of the letter. And he says, And his incomparably great power for us who believe, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. His power is incomparably great. It is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and put him far above every rule and authority and power and dominion. And it is no coincidence that Paul says that in chapter 1 and then in chapter 6, what does he say? Our war is against against the rulers and the authorities and the powers and the dominions and the forces of uh, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. From the very beginning of the book of Ephesus, of Ephesians, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul is saying Jesus is more powerful than all of the things we are at war with. 
Jesus is more powerful than anything we battle with. He is more powerful, and we have access to that power. Because as Paul says elsewhere, he says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And through that spirit, through God's power, we are equipped with the armor of God so that we could stand firm, not in our own strength, but in God's strength. No matter what we are facing, the battles we find ourselves in, we are equipped with God's power. We've been given a gift through the Spirit to stand firm, to be covered in battle by God's power, by God's armor. And we have to be people who live as though we are equipped every day with God's power. Equipped with God's power rather than our own. Now, I know that I said I I wasn't going to parse out every detail of all the pieces of the armor of God, and that's true. But I am going to go through one of the pieces of the armor of God. So I want us to think for a second about the shield of faith that Paul mentions here. Because Paul does something really interesting. He he uses a word for shield that is very specific in the Greek. Okay, in the Greek, there's tons of words for shields. Greeks love shields, okay? They have tons of them. They also have a word that just means general shield. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses a very specific word to describe this Roman shield that was known as the scutum. And there, we've got a picture here of what it looked like. This is a Roman legionnaire with the scutum, this square shield. And Paul uses this very specific word to describe this shield. And the, the point, I think, is that this is a very unique sort of thing. The scutum was considered kind of this technological advancement that propelled Rome and her armies across the Mediterranean. That part of what made Rome militarily superior was this shield and those tactics they developed around it. And the, the scutum itself was um, very large and very heavy. It was unique in that way. It weighed upwards of 20 pounds just on its own. And it was large enough, right, that you could kind of kneel behind it or duck behind it. You could hide your whole body behind it. But the Roman scutum was also, it had a weakness, which is that in one-on-one combat, the shield was useless. If you could imagine trying to hold 20 pounds on your arm like this and fight somebody, it doesn't work. What often would happen is that if a, a legionnaire was left on their own, that someone could kind of come around on their sides, kind of like a swim move in football, right, and attack them on the side. And the shield would be too heavy for them to protect themselves. That's a huge flaw in your design, right? But the Roman legions never allowed themselves to get into that position. Because what the Romans did is they used this thing that they called the the tortoise formation. And this is what it looked like. And what the Roman legions would do is that they would come together, all these legionnaires with their shields... And they would line their shields up next to each other. So I'd stand here with my shield. The next guy would stand with his shield, so on and so forth. And then the people behind would hold their shields above their heads to protect from arrows and rocks and whatever else would get thrown in. The the soldiers on the sides would hold their shields to the side to protect the sides. And they would advance slowly. 
one step at a time. Safe from the attacks to their left and their right. Secured because of this community. Right? The Roman legionnaire, he might have struggled to stand firm on his own, but he did not struggle to stand firm in this community. And the same thing is true for you. You don't stand firm alone. You stand firm in community. You don't stand firm alone. You stand firm in community. Like the Roman shield, faith can often be heavy and unwieldy. It can be difficult to maneuver on your own. And like Peter describes, right, Satan as this prowling lion, this roaring lion prowling around. There's nothing he likes more than to find someone on their own, vulnerable from all sorts of angles. But in community where we can come together and raise our shields of faith together alongside one another, having people who stand next to us on our left and our right, who are willing to cover our heads with their shield and protect us with their faith. The arrows of the enemy are extinguished and made ineffective, as Paul says. When we're in community, those flaming arrows that are aimed at our marriages are ineffective. The arrows that are aimed at our addictions are ineffective. The arrows that are aimed at our mental health are ineffective. Whatever Satan is trying to attack, whatever attacks he's sending our way are made ineffective by a community of people who are willing to raise their shields alongside one another. This is why you can't live on the edges of the church, on the outskirts of community, hoping that you can do this on your own. Faith is unwieldy on your own, so be a part of the church and not just a fringe part of the church. Studies show that 70% of students who attend a church in high school will walk away from their faith before they graduate from college. That is a terrifying statistic. 70% of people who attend a church in high school will walk away from their faith before they graduate college. But the one thing that they say has an impact on this that changes the statistic is whether the student and their families are really a committed part of a church, whether they're engaged in the community in a real and meaningful way. That's why we have our middle school and our high school students sit in the service over here. It's not because we're lazy and we don't want to have Sunday Bible study for them, okay? It's because we believe as a church, as a team of pastors, that the way that we will build a community that is prepared to raise its shield around these students is for these students to be in a community of faith and not to be cordoned off in their own space, but to be in our community together. And parents, just for a second, let me, let me get on my, my high school pastor soapbox here, Okay. Sorry, I just got, you know, whatever. (laughs) All right, I'm back on my high school pastor soapbox now. It's real. It's right here. Just imagine it. Okay, so on average, on average, American Christians attend church 1.7 
weeks a month. 1.7 weeks a month, okay? That's just about two hours a month. Parents, do you think two hours a month is enough time for your kids to build the kind of community that it's going to take to raise the shields around them that will protect their faith in college? If someone said to you right now, there's a 70% chance your kid will drop out of college if you don't do this one thing, you would be standing up right now leaving to do that one thing. If somebody said there's a 70% chance your kid will get dropped from their sports team, if you don't do this one thing, you would do it. If someone said there's a 70% chance that your kid will not get a job after college, if you don't do this one thing, you would do it. And so what I'm saying this morning is that there's a 70% chance that your kid, your child, will walk away from their faith if you don't do this one thing. So will you do it? Will you be a part of this community and not just a fringe part? Will you be committed to what Jesus is doing here? Be a part of the church and not just a fringe part of the church for your sake and for your families. Be a part of a life group. Find the people, don't just rely on Sunday mornings, but find the people who are really going to be on your left and your right when you face trouble in life who are going to be around to raise their shields around you when you need them. If you need to join a life group, look, it's this easy. Grab the connect card out of the pew. Write your name on it. Check life group. Drop it off on your way out. I won't be offended that you grabbed something and wrote during my sermon. I won't assume it's a mean note about me, okay? It's okay. Thanks, Dree. I appreciate that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for some of you, you're dealing with hurts and habits and hangups in your life. We have an awesome program called Celebrate Recovery that meets on Monday evenings. And I promise you, it is a community full of people who are ready to raise their shields around you and help protect you through whatever it is you're working through in life. And if you want more information about that, you can do the same thing. Check Celebrate Recovery or just talk to somebody at the connect table. Be a part of the church and don't just be a fringe part. Be committed to what God is doing here. Because you're at war in the fiercest battle, a cosmic war against the powers of the dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And in the middle of this battle, right, you stand firm in God's strength, you stand firm in community, but then what? And Paul isn't done with us yet. He says here in verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. As we prepare for battle, we have to raise our voices, not in anger or in frustration, but in prayer. We have to be the kinds of people who are going to raise our voices in prayer the way Paul tells us to, to pray with, to pray with all these requests for the Lord, to pray for our brothers and sisters, all the Lord's people. And let's be really clear here for a second. 
What it means to raise your voice in prayer like this does not mean that you're going to start praying before meals, right, with the classic like, Lord, bless this food to my body, amen. Okay, that's not the point of this passage. What we're being called to do is to raise your voice in prayer with the shameless audacity that Jesus describes in Luke 11 to ask, to seek, to knock. To have the shameless audacity to raise our voice in prayer like we were actually on a battlefield. If you found yourself in battle, right, you wouldn't just pray like, oh, no, you would pray like your life depended on it. And today I'm saying, let's be the people who raise our voices in prayer like our lives depend on it. Like God has given us something, given us in this cosmic war a way for us to have access to his power in prayer through his spirit. So we have to be people who raise our voices in prayer over every battleground we find ourselves on. Raise our voices in prayer for health. Asking God with the shameless audacity to be at work healing those around us. Raising our voices in prayer for our kids. Raising our voices in prayer for wisdom. Raising our voices in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Raising our voices in prayer for the people on our 8 to 15. Raising our voices in prayer with shameless audacity to actually ask God to do something. So what would, it, what would it look like? What would happen in your life if for the next five weeks, the duration of this series, you committed to raising your voice in prayer every day? And here's what I want to challenge you to do. What would happen if for these next five weeks, you got to work or to school or wherever it is you go in the morning seven minutes early? And you prayed for seven minutes. That's it, okay? If you can look me in the eye and say that seven minutes is going to ruin your schedule, something's up with your schedule, okay? Because I don't know if I believe that seven minutes is going to destroy your plans for your day. But what I do know is that seven minutes can be the thing that helps you stand firm in God's power. Seven minutes of raising your voice in prayer every morning. It could open doors for you at your workplace. It could transform your school. It could reshape your family. It could refocus your life. It could change the battle altogether. So don't let this week be just another week. Let this week be the week that you prepare for battle. Because as I look out this morning, in the spirit of Montgomery, I see people who are at war. People who are fighting battles all throughout your life. Placing confidence in your own ability, your own strength, your own willpower of desperate attempts to save your life through your own strength. And all that must cease if we fight 
on our own, we will lose. So today we have to say here, we will stand firm and fight. Right here, we will stand firm and fight. We'll stand firm in God's power. We will stand firm in community. We will raise our voices in prayer. Don't let this week be just another week. Let this week be the week that you prepare for battle. So how will you prepare for battle this week? Maybe for some of you or all of us, it's committing. I am going to show up seven minutes early to work or school or breakfast or whatever it is, and I'm going to use that time to raise my voice in prayer like my life depended on it. Maybe for some of you, it's reaching out right now and grabbing a Connect card and signing up for a life group. Finding the people who can do this life of faith with you. Maybe for some of you, it's taking the steps to go, you know what, you're right. We probably need to reorganize our schedule a little bit so we can actually be a part of the church and not just a fringe part. Maybe for others of you right now, you're saying there's a battle going on in my life and I need prayer for that. I need a community of people who are going to raise their shields around me, who are going to pray for me and raise their voices for me. And if that's you, what I'm going to invite you to in a moment, we're going to sing one last song together and we're going to have the prayer team up here at the front. And if you just need prayer, when we start singing, just stand up and come forward and come get prayer. Come forward and say to someone, hey, this is what's going on in my life and I need just prayer for this right now. And if you can't get up here or if everything fills up up here, I just invite you, just tap someone on the shoulder next to you that you don't have to know them and say, hey, this is where I'm at. Because if we're going to say we have to be a part of a community, that then you'll have the shields of faith to protect you. That means that we have to be the kinds of people who are going to use our shields of faith to protect those around us. So how will you prepare for battle this week?